0: Hi everyone, Um, this is Mukanda Raghavan and uh, welcome to another episode of Mirror Media. Today we are joined by Suhag Shukla, who is uh, the director of uh, Hindu American Foundation based out of Washington, D.C. And she and her team have been, to be honest, one of the most vibrant and vital organizations within. I mean, we say North America, but primarily America, uh, the United States of America in addressing both cultural, um, political and media issues that the Hindu community at large deals with. So um, it's a pleasure to have Suha on today. And I kinda wanna open the door for you to, to introduce yourself and kind of, uh, let's just talk about your background first before we get into the other topics. Cause I think it's, uh, um, it's one of the things is, when we have these kind of podcasts, and a few of these have popped up over the last few, probably last year, to be honest. Like, I think there's uh, Kushal's and Shams, um, and you've been on both of theirs. And I think you've also yes. been on uh, Brown Pundits. Um, I
1: have, taken my rounds.
0: <laughs> uh, but it's it's an interesting new ecosphere that we're having uh, with all these brown people with cultural ties actually being able to talk about our culture and our history and traditions. And I think it's, it's, more than time that you guys actually came out and started talking with us instead of talking to the, 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 the non-Hindu public in many ways about the idea of Hinduism and being Hindu outside of India. So without further ado, uh, Shukla, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Suhag, welcome to the show. And if you can, can you give us a little bit of background on yourself,
1: sure. Thank you, Mukunda, for for having me here. And um, you're right; it's it's really, um, I think, an exciting time for us because we at Hef, you know, obviously monitor the the media, and we can talk about that later. But what's been frustrating to us is not seeing that sort of content that is really taking a deep dive into a lot of the different topics that you know, affect us on a day-to-day basis that might affect or inform our understandings of our tradition and the relevance of old, you know, ancient teachings and how they might take shape uh, to address contemporary issues. So um, definitely uh, a welcome uh, phenomenon, so to speak, of of this increasing um, number of channels and podcasts and all that sort of stuff. So I'm the daughter of immigrants. My father came here in the early 60s to Mm -hmm. pursue his master's degree and then um, went back to India, met my mom, uh, came back, and I was born in 1971 um, in the San Francisco Bay Area when it was not as diverse as it is today. obviously, probably just at the early turning edge of even computers. Apple computers was uh, (laughs) probably just a seed in in someone's mind and and not even in a garage yet, right? So a very, very different uh, time in the United States. So I I think, at least based from my anecdotal uh, experience, I very rarely meet people who were older than me because we were kind of the firstborns. Of right. that next generation. So, for instance, the first temple, I didn't actually go to a temple until maybe I was at least five or six. Prior to that, my introduction or exposure to Hindu practice was primarily home practice. Seeing my grandmother lived with us, so seeing her day to day practice. Um, I'm just going to turn off some of these notifications so they're oh, Sorry about that. Um, but um, you know, seeing her daily home practice. uh, She used to record reading the Gita out loud. Um, And so hearing that, and then um, just in the times that we sat with her, we would hear the stories of Prahlad or Dhruva or Uh, Mirabai. So that was kind of my earliest exposure to the tradition, uh, really a familial um, setting. Uh, And then you started seeing kind of the expansion of the community and institution building so that first level was the linguistic groups. So, Ajayi Samaj is where I started seeing the cultural practices, then temples started emerging, and then um, finally Balbihars. uh, So, um, as I started becoming a teenager and asking a lot of questions of, you know, it it just wasn't enough for me to just do what I was told. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) but really wanting to understand things and then make a decision for myself as to whether it, whatever the practice was, mm-hmm. whether it kind of resonated with how I saw the world and my purpose in it. And um, so when my parents kind of hit a wall of not necessarily being able to answer my questions, because, you know, like many uh, Indian Hindus, you kind of grow up in an environment where it's just part of the ethos, you, part of tradition. So you just do things Because that's how the way they've always been done and on top of that, you don't necessarily have someone questioning you as to why you do things. And um, so you never even have necessarily the opportunity to stop and think like, why do we do this? So all of that together um, and them at least having, I feel, the humility and the intellectual curiosity to say, well, we don't know how to answer you in a way that's satisfying your needs and we ourselves want to know and so that's when uh they started asking around and and we discovered that jin Mai mission had just started um right. and so i started there and my journey um in still wanting to learn about the tradition and the philosophy continued and ended up manifesting as a bachelor's in religion right. um, so it's something uh, at least in terms of wanting to know about our tradition and um, the history has I think that seed was planted very early, probably from a past life or, or whatever.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, just a, a couple of questions. So you're, I mean, I, 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 it seems clear that your family is Gujarati and you guys came in 71. So were you born in India or were you born in I was the born States?
1: In born in California. So I'm a native Californian. Okay.
0: And, and I'm sure, it was. I don't think Livermore Temple at that time was no, yet.
1: I actually went to the groundbreaking for okay. the Livermore Temple. So yeah. that's how far back. Fremont there's a temple in Fremont I remember going to the grand opening of the Fremont temple
2: right. and,
1: and um, prior to that well the very first temple I ever went to was the ISKCON temple in Berkeley um, oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so so that was that was the very first temple that I had ever been to
0: you know I, th- I think it's kind of interesting that many Hindus when they come to the States at least I mean, I'm I'm a few years younger than you, but still, like, very probably similar experiences. Is their first sometimes their first exposure, especially in the early, uh, I mean, 70s and 80s, was actually the Iskon first yes. before to any sort of uh, like I mean, I, I don't want to say ISKCON isn't native, but like a native traditional temple that okay. probably we're used to nowadays, right? Like Iskon's, uh, it's they're Hindu, but it's it's. I don't know if they consider themselves into that's always been like a in between like a, a dialogue within their system but uh, for me it's it's a very hindu system right um,
1: absolutely i, I mean the, i think the the most accurate um, description that i have seen or self identification right. is being of the uh, hin- being of the hindu goudia vaishnava tradition which i think yeah. you know that that is a good
0: uh, comprehensive description uh, right. but, but, but it's also because it's it's composed ma- mostly of non-indians mm-hmm. it it has it, it it doesn't have all the the cultural i, I wouldn't tra- nut trappings but the i would say flowerings that it, in we have within each of our cultures like a Gujarati temple will be different from like a Tamil temple or Kanada temple or sure. bengali temple right so well, it's so
1: why you know i think that in some ways I actually, so when I first went, I was a little bit confused (laughs) because especially when you've grown up seeing the tradition within your family or maybe a little bit broadly with maybe five or 10 families, there's definitely a certain cultural context and, and that too subcultural context. So, you know, if, if my family's uh, friend circle, was primarily Gujarati. Then it's going to be a very Gujar like the bhajans that we sing are Gujarati. Um,
0: all that stuff. Yeah. The,
1: way, the way in which we tell the stories and things are going to yeah. be in Gujarati. Uh, but um, I do remember feeling a little confused because you did see primarily, you know, people of European descent, but then they yeah. were wearing dhotis, they were wearing satties, yeah. and they were singing songs. But their accents tend to be Bengali, right? <laughs> so, um, so, you know, you, you hear the words and, and it still sounds different primarily because there is, I think a little bit of that, uh, not a little bit, but there is a Bengali culture, um, uh, or cultural practices and the bhajans and everything like that are in, in Bengali. So I got, it is definitely interesting. I was for sure confused. It was probably my first exposure to Hinduism as a global tradition without really having those words to frame
0: so, so like, before you went to ISKCON, did you, I'm sure you went to Gujarat at some point before, or did you go to temples in India, or was this, like, well before even that?
1: It was well before that, because I, I think my first trip to India was my uncle's wedding, which was, like, 76 or 77. Okay. So, I was already six or seven before my first trip. You know, okay. back then, you, you have families who are really just trying to make ends meet and yeah. they they're just getting established so going to India was a luxury i mean just making long distance phone calls was a luxury <laughs> so um you know it was it had to be something big to be right. going back home and and it happened to be my my uncle's wedding um, but i you know and, and the few the few fleeting memories i have from the time i was 6 i I do still remember, like, a sense of belonging, like, oh, wow, everyone looks like me.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: you know, the, the, the foods and the smells and everything. So there there was this, and I still feel that to this day. Um, Even though people, when I go back to India, are like, oh, you Americans, you know, and you get a little bit of that, there's still, there's still a very strong sense of belonging.
0: Yeah, I mean... Uh, uh, I went to gujarat uh the first and only time was like in 2000 and i was there for about a month so i spent uh time traveling through Ahmedabad and porbandar and Dwarka, somnat and just kind of did like a, a big tour of gujarat and it's so i know it's so fascinating because it's uh one of the things i, I, I remember is like because Amavad is uh you know the capital there's a big influence of uh of Srinachi from baroda right you know and, yeah. and but you go, if you go to dwarka region there's more of uh R- ramanauja influence there's in middle of dwarka there's this pillar that okay. was uh, put there in the 11th tenth, 11th century by Ramanajacharya. and it's still written in the devanagari sanskrit and it's it's kind of really interesting to see how the different regions have Different practices, like so, so not this, less Vaishnava and more more Shaiva, and it's just so, so diverse in terms of how their practices are, um, and, it, and that's just in one region within oh, like an area that's so diverse. It's kind of cool,
1: absolutely. And and even even not just intra, but even inter. I mean, I have family members who are Jain, uh, yeah. so you know you see a lot of that as well. Um, not just in Gujarat, throughout India. That's why.
0: Um, it's probably more I, so in Gujarat because the Jains really aren't that prevalent outside of Gujarat that much. There's some in uh, Punjab, um, and, and then
1: Rajasthan. You probably see a lot of that as well. Yeah, but uh, there is um, there is tremendous diversity, and yeah. in some sense, I think travel and communication are starting to um, you know they're 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 trying to they're starting to create a lot of overlap or familiarity um but that familiarity comes with with ease right, right. In, in the sense that there's still even with the diversity there are still underlying there's an underlying ethos exactly how you can articulate it is i think the challenge for all of us there yeah are, yeah um but there is there is and i don't think people fully comprehend the the amount of diversity. my husband for instance is from uh from saurashtra so yeah, yeah. my family hails from the northern part of gujarat so even in the language itself someone just recently told me that the Gachavari gujarati is has closer affinity to sanskrit than northern gujarat where there was greater persian influence in the language sure. so um from language to practices, to dietary, even within that, and we're both Hindu, um, yeah. there's still, there were so many differences, you know. So,
0: are your, is your husband's side from a different, I, mean, I hate the word sect, but a different uh, tradition than your side, your month, than your side was?
1: So, my, we were, we're Prashti Marg. Vaishnavas on yeah. my mom's side of the family primarily um and my my father's sides were they were maybe more Vaishnava slash sanathanis but definitely on my mom's side very strict Vaishnavas to the extent where it's really just you know not even Vaishnava but it has to be Shinanti you know yeah, that yeah. Level. um and then on his side uh probably Shaivite in their roots but also kind of uh practicing more Sanatani Hinduism. So, so, so
0: when you say Sanatani, what do you mean by that?
1: What I mean by that is that they're equally comfortable so my so so my Asim's maternal grandfather, for instance, strong Advaitin, mm-hmm. but then you know, uh took uh, Diksha from Prabhupada Okay. and practiced as a Godia Vaishnava, Vaishnava for a while, then came back to Advaita, would be equally comfortable going to a Durga temple. And so there's just kind of, to me, a Sanatani is kind of like a pan-Hindu practitioner yeah. who isn't necessarily tied to any one particular deity or sect, and, um, you know, I guess that's the best way
0: to explain it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I mean, it it's
1: it, it, technical, but that's that's how I see it.
0: Yeah, it's, it's always difficult because like these, I, I think these these categories we place ourselves in are, are unnatural in some sense mm-hmm. because uh, it, it, it's a way we identify ourselves, but that's our primary identification world. Like many of us will probably go to any temple, worship right. any god, even though we belong to a particular tradition. I mean, I, I think within, that's just the way, like whatever Hindu term you want to call it. Is you know it's kind of porous, you just kind of move around wherever there's that gap, you go to that gap and you exactly. fill it in
1: exactly. And I think that in some sense, the temples here in the United States reflect that, okay? So, uh, the Livermore Temple is a good example. Uh, the temple that we used to attend, we lived in Minneapolis for six years, but the temple uh-huh. out there in Maple Grove, where they have many temples that are dedicated to different deities, and yep. it's all housed under one building. And so, you know, on a Monday, if you just want to do Abhishekam, Rudra Abhishekam, or whatever, then yeah. that's where you go and there's something going on there. Um, if it's Tuesday and you want to worship Hanuman, you can go to the mini temple. And it's all under one building and everyone is there. Yeah. So uh, I it, I don't see those types of temples in India, um, or at least I, I, I haven't run across one. It's usually, you know, it's a like Somnath, it's a Shiva. Yeah. Um and uh Srinathji is a is a Krishna temple. So I don't see that, but I do I do like that because <laughs> it um, it reflects I think our our internal way of being for many of us.
0: Yeah, I mean also the difference is um I mean obviously like I, I I live in LA, so we have the Malibu temple, which is similar mm-hmm. to what you said, right? There's like the there's the Vishnu complex and the Shiva complex, mm-hmm. and they each have, you know, the the deities that the, the, the pantheon or deities that connected to that particular deity. Um, but in India, obviously, the difference would be primarily is that the, each shetra or each location has its own history, its story, right. and right. Uh, and they have what's known as stella Purana, uh, basically <laughs> connecting why that particular deity is worshipped there. And right. then when those temples were built, they had to follow the Agama and traditions, which, which would... Limit the the deity to being one deity in that location, in that unless place. unless so it like a merged deity like Hari or Arda You know th- mm-hmm. that's a little separate. But yeah, I mean, in in this sense, also, I think for us, it's much more in the states. It's much more uh, it's about practicality, right? right. You, you want as many Hindus to get to one place instead of having these separate separate little corners. Exactly,
1: and and it's practicality. But I also think that we're going to see um, a shift in in the next 10 or 15 years result of critical mass uh, that you do see so so in minneapolis Uh as an example you had the main hindu temple uh and you have all the deities but now you know there's enough people who are um telugu speaking and they may want to build something in the bay area for instance there's enough gujaratis that they want to have a you know, Vaishnava Parivar and it might just be uh, the the deity or the Murti will just be Srinaji. So yeah. you know, if you have enough, Swami Naren is another example, yeah. you know, where so I do feel that as the prosperity of the community grows and there's enough critical mass where you know enough people can come together and say, hey, we do need this particular uh, temple and and not necessarily the Pan temple, then You know, we are seeing that happening.
0: So how do you feel about that,
1: though? Uh, (laughs) Personally, you know, I think it's just I don't really have an opinion about it. I think it's just that's just the way communities grow and change and evolve over time. You know, practicality also leads to a point where a building can't sustain the number of people that are in a community. So if you're meeting the need, but at the same time, there was kind of a community feel when there was one, yeah. and it was likely that you were going to meet people, um, at that one temple. And we haven't even talked about Caribbean temples No. that are part of the Hindu scape. Yeah. I, I personally really enjoy going to those because at least the ones that I have, I, I have attended uh, uh, Guyanese or Trinidadi temple in Florida, mm-hmm. in Minnesota, um, and in New York, and they oftentimes, it's interesting to see what Hinduism looks like five, six generations out. It's, right. it's a congregation style, but I, I like that, where there's a sense of community where everyone comes together, you sit down for satsang, you have a lecture, yeah. you sing some bhajans, you might do Hanuman Chalisa together, and then end with arthi and eat together. Um, there is a sense of community that's that's developed as a result of that kind of congregational style, where some of the larger temples now, um, sometimes when they're so big, it almost feels like it's kind of like s- sitting at a restaurant at- versus going to a food court, <laughs> which is a really yeah. analogy maybe, and I don't mean to offend anyone with it, but you know, sometimes there's there's a counter, you pay your twenty one dollars or whatever it is for Archana. And then you go, but there's not necessarily or always um, ongoing programming that brings everyone that's under one yeah. year together.
0: Well, well I, I mean, the one thing I, I liked, uh, at least about the, the current way the temples are set up in the U.S. is, like, mm-hmm. last year we went for Durga Puja and um, Navratri. you know, they do Chandi Homa for nine days. So we try to go, me and Ratchet went, for, like, two or three times to, to participate. And... Because of that, we were able to meet people from diverse backgrounds, and and uh, both both DC and non desi that are part of part mm. of the mixture. And it was that to me is so cool because you might have someone from the Vishnu Temple come down to or to the to this area, and they see the Chhinni Home going on that they would never been exposed to. And I think that 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 exposure is so important which which you you would get in india just by the nature of living in india right you right. go from one place to another in the us you won't get that if you if you have like a temple that was just like say for just for krishna you're not and you that's the only temple you go to you don't get exposure to anything shaivite or ganesha or 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 shakta or anything and i think that's in 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 the U.S., one of the problems that I see is having these siloed kind of communities, also based on linguistic groups, is that you end up only hanging out with that linguistic group, and and it becomes very clickish to me, um, in some sense. And, and I get it in India, uh, for right or wrong reason, the breaking down the states into linguistic is a problem, and I also think just because I think historically speaking. Nope, no, no, uh, no. Raja or or kingdom was broken up linguistically, right? Sure. They had to deal with it, and now our identities are so based on our linguistic um, core. And and you see this problem arise in South India, in, in Tamil Nadu, about being Tamil and Dravidian and this versus right. uh, And and these are problems that people we're seeing even with Telangana versus. I don't know. I, I think these divisions within our community are more problematic when we don't have. That that net of of our tradit like our larger Hindu tradition to keep us grounded.
1: Well, I, I do I do think that that is that is the unifying thread. Is that right. is that Hindu Hindu Dharma is our ethos. Um, however you want to define it, uh, but I I do see beauty in the linguistic groups because each linguistic group also has a rich tradition of poetry, oh, of music, and and those things I fear for. Of losing, as a result of English taking over, sure. um, and um, with uh, with people moving around everywhere. I mean, because yeah. or even the diaspora, I'm still fluent in Gujarati, and my parents taught me how to read and write. Yeah. Reading and writing is at a kindergarten level, though, <laughs> I love to like you know graduate to middle school at some point, but. Um, but even in in India, if you start in an English medium, yeah, you may not know how to read and write in your linguistic language um, past my level, and I'm right. I'm a generation out. So uh, I, you know, I I hear your point about uh, language possibly being a source of division. Uh, but but that's where I think um, you know our philosophy and all those things. Have such a value? Uh, no, to, yeah.
0: I mean, for me, like I growing up, uh, you no, know, like my dad's Canada, my mom's thummel So mm-hmm. in the house, we spoke. My we learned thummel first, and then I learned Canada by listening to my parents speak to each other. My mom learned Canada to speak to my dad because she was like kind of like the brothers. My dad and his brothers were speaking Canada. She's like, I want to learn what they're saying, and so she <laughs> learned, Canada, and, and all, and all learned Canada, and all and all the sister in laws learned Canada, and all because like i think like 300 years ago my dad's side was Tamil. so they kept that Tamil tradition alive while in Karnataka. so they spoke but being in bangalore you learn you speak four or five languages anyway so growing up i spoke Kanada of and and i later learned hindi mm-hmm. um and the sanskrit my dad taught me from a young age so i'm probably somewhere like uh, sanskrit probably like Middle school, high school, maybe college. I don't know. I have to figure that part out. <laughs> I
1: mean, I can... You're far ahead of me. That's on my punch list. Like, ones I'm a... Empty nester, which will happen kind of next year, uh, that I can no. take
0: up uh, Sanskrit. <laughs> but, but my point is, like, our linguisticness remains with us because it's part of our core, right? At the end of the day, it's it's like you know whether I learned, you know, I would learn shlokas and Sanskrit and also learn like prabandhams in Tamil or or the the songs in Purandasa, Kanakadasa, and even Mirabai and and Tukaram, and so like it, it was lucky that. I had this background where my my, my family was kind of pan india so it was more about like it wasn't wasn't about linguisticness it was about hey let's learn about all these other peoples within the greater indian world because they all bring some sort of beauty to the canvas that that makes our life better right because there's this interaction and but i what i've noticed is that that is that happened a lot more with our generation with our generation sure but If you end up being siloed, I think you might lose some of that. Sure,
1: absolutely, absolutely. But I do, so for instance, you know, I am only fluent in Gujarati, but because of that, I understand Hindi and I can read Dev Nagri from what I know in Gujarati. So, you know, especially for shlokas and things like that, where... I want to get the pronunciation right. There might be English, but there's a T, and you're yeah. like, "Well, is it Tha? Is it Tha? <laughs> you know." And so, going, you can still connect the dots. So Sanskrit also yeah. could, at least for some languages, be in addition to in in addition to like Hindu philosophy or teachings, oh, or, sure. you know, uh, precepts that Sanskrit too can be that uh, that
0: Yeah and i agree and i think it's uh it's something that I, I you know i i wish i hope in i mean this is something that maybe um you know hindu america uh, american foundation is partaking in is trying to make that more of like a, i don't know like brought into our, our temples and I, I know you don't do that per se but you have that that power uh and kind of influence where where we can actually do something of that nature to connect across
1: Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things, if we're talking about temples and and participation, I mean, in some sense, though, um, while we have a growth in temples, every temple, and this is not just temples, but I think other faith communities have the same challenges, um, diminishing number of people coming, right? Yes. The challenge, I think, for temples in the United States are, okay, we have a constant flow of of an immigrant generation that you know, from India has a temple as part of a central part of their lives and they're attending and they're maybe supporting, but then what's happening to the next generation? Yeah. Are yeah. they showing up? Um, okay. and I think it, it, it depends, um, on the temple and the community and the the programming sure. that they have. But the one thing that I have seen where temples have been successful in ensuring that, you know, subsequent generations are coming is one education mm-hmm. and providing quality education on the tradition and then service some sort of component that then takes those teachings and translates them to well what does this really mean for you in terms of how you treat other people or how you serve your community or how how you might treat the environment if you can connect the dots successfully whether it's at the familial level or community level through a temple um i think there's some there's some opportunities there for the temples who have not incorporated those types of things
0: um so let me ask you on this um i don't know if you guys have done this kind of work but are is there a drop in from the immigrant population to i guess i mean our abcd kind of uh like i guess uh population that's grown up in the u.s has there been a drop in temple uh attendance
1: So, so my experience is anecdotal, Uh, you know, in that I don't necessarily find my cohort in large numbers um, at the temples. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, that's super anecdotal. But uh, Kathy Joshi, who's a um, she studies this. she's a Ph.D. in education and something else. She's a Ph.D., but and I can't remember exactly the topic, so I don't want to be quoted on that. But yeah. she actually has written a book on this, and she followed generational trends. Mm-hmm. And uh, from what I remember of her findings, she was finding kind of a drop-off Yeah. that even if someone had gone to, say, a Balihar or a yeah. temple as a child with their parents, the likelihood of them continuing um, dropped. Right. And there were a variety of reasons. One sure. is comfort that you might Uh, you might have learned, you you know, certain aspects of the tradition, but then when it comes to just that person going in on their own, there might be a level of intimidation. There might be a level of not feeling connected to the community. Uh, So in that sense, uh, our temples are going to have to evolve to meet those changing needs. If they stay as they are, there will be a segment whose needs are met, right? But I think there's there's also other segments um, whose needs may not necessarily uh, be being met right now, and there's opportunity there.
0: You know, it's I, I will put I I will say this. I think so. There's a temple in in Southern California in Norwalk. It's called Sthanam Temple. Um, I don't even sure you've heard of it. Uh, it's it, it's right next to the. It's right next to the swaminari temple and the one thing i think they do a really good job about actually is um during navratri um and actually even when i was in college they would hold garbas right they would hold garbas at the temple itself they have a separate location where the garba was but it's part of the temple pre- temple premises and i think and, and there was a good um a, a, two big kujati communities in the area the bhaktas and i think the certain patels were used that as their home temple mm-hmm. um and and that built I guess uh, links and anchors within the community to the temple so that temple like sponsorship or uh, what is it attendance hasn't really dropped what I've noticed but somewhere some, someplace like the Malibu temple um, the attendance I could tell has dropped or it's primarily like Im- the immigrants um, yeah. just because I don't think they do as much in terms of uh, the cultural programs or connecting right and and that's a problem i think that, that other that's another,
1: that's another way in which you can continue to draw people right yeah. is are those celebrations the festivals um through garba or through diwali programs yeah. or celebration of holi and that's also those are also good opportunities to educate the public Yeah. Uh, the broader public about hinduism um, that and so so for instance the hindu american foundation has released lesson plans that in, in some way, what the temples are doing, we see um, our, I guess, place in maybe bridging any gap there is between what we are doing for our community and serving our needs internally right. with getting greater appreciation from from our neighbors and from the mainstream about what we're doing. And for them to not just appreciate, but also, I mean, you have to understand in order to appreciate. So improving that understanding.
0: right? Um- so, again, it's, a, it's kind of a tangent. So I also, I mean, I know you're a lawyer, too. Um, yeah. Did you ever had an opportunity to practice? or, or I, is that's-
1: I did. So, you know, after I, I went into law school wanting to do public service. Mm. So my first job out of law school was with legal aid. And so okay. I was a homeless advocate, and I worked um, – essentially to provide um, benefits and representation to victims of domestic violence, to veterans, and to other people who um, were facing homelessness. So that was my first uh, job straight out of college or law school. And then-
0: um, One step. Uh, Can I ask you, did that drive to help, uh, I mean, indigenous populations did I come from your 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 Hindu practice or Hindu, or was it something that was separate? I mean, because I think it's important to to try to understand how. Uh,
1: you know, I, I don't. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I, I've never really thought about. I, I grew up with stories of service. Yeah. From a very young age, yeah. right? So whether it's the story of Shravan and then the way that he serves his parents. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or um, I'm trying to think of any other story, even if it was, you know, stories of Mahatma Gandhi and the way that he served the country, or any other, um, you know, either historical figure of modern times or from our scriptures, there is a strong um, message of of trying to help other people. And so in some sense, maybe at a a very um, subconscious level, that value was being instilled. Uh, my, um, my grandfather on my mother's side was a freedom fighter.
2: Right.
1: And uh, so even within the family, when there's stories of, of service, yeah. you just hear that they're spoken about in very respectful terms. And and so even if it's not like, this is why we need to serve, you know, right. that's not the message, but, but you get the subtle cues. Um, and so certainly that was at that time did i articulate it as well all my fellow human beings are uh, fellow atman i don't necessarily articulating it in that in those terms today do i see it that way probably Uh, my own understanding of of the tradition and um, maybe it also being internalized um, Mm -hmm. more through different practices Um, I could say that today, but back then, I think it was just, look, doing good for other people is the right thing to do. It's what our family does. It's how our, you know, even little things like if my parents saw another family, Indian family at the Indian grocery store, because back then you would recognize them. (laughs) You know, know, they would bring them over and immediately serve them or a random friend calls and says, hey, we have a friend who's visiting the San Francisco Bay Area. Can they come stay? So, like, Atiti Devo Bhava, it's a very new exactly. concept, and so we saw it in living, breathing practice, but it it wasn't like my parents would stop and say, this is what Atiti Devo Bhava means. Like, you know, right. it wasn't that. It was just the way we were, and so I'm sure all those things kind of inspired that spark to want to give back and do something.
0: Right, right. So you you, were, you did legal aid work and then did you just continue to do legal work or how did uh, half start at that how point? How did that
1: yeah. happen? So, so going back even, actually during law school, it, let me rewind back to okay. undergraduate, I was very active in the Indian Student Association on campus and uh, very quickly realized that that space, people were far more comfortable with Cultural manifestations of of our tradition, so we could have a Diwali program, but let's just be sure that it's not overtly religious, yeah. uh, you know, so that all the students who are there are comfortable. Which, you know, for that's a whole different topic. But <laughs> <laughs> so 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 that was kind of the. The, the environment and so many of us felt that well how do we meet our spiritual needs um, mm-hmm. and so we organically started like a Gita reading and Pujan group um, where it was just a bunch of friends and slowly mm-hmm. started spreading and people were curious so they started coming so we were very informal where you know we would get together on a Friday night um, sing some Pujans read a few verses from the um, Gita and then go out for pizza maybe even go dancing yeah. You know, it was just part of. It became part of our our college scene. When I got in law school, or got to law school, a number of undergrads came to me and said, "Hey, we want to start uh, a chapter of this group called the Hindu Student Council."
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Because other campuses were starting to start it, and I believe it was maybe the 50th anniversary of independence, um, and so they were doing some sort of like pan uh, country celebration, and so I think the students at University of Florida thought, okay, this is a good opportunity to start a chapter. So um, I did help um, them establish a chapter there. Interestingly enough, there had been some pushback um, from some professors on campus about starting Hindu Student Council because of associations with the VHPA, yeah. and blah, blah, blah. So that was probably my first taste of the internal dynamics. Um, yeah. Hindus face um, in being able to have kind of a, a an assertive or even a more public uh, presence um, as Hindus. Um, then, you know, fast forward to where I was a newlywed. Uh, my husband, Asim uh, Shukla, is also a co-founder. One of my law school classmates, Nikhil Joshi, along with mm-hmm. me, Megani, who we didn't know at the time, all of us. Um, so Nikhil, Asim and I were starting to write letters to the editor and really kind of tapping into um, some of the biases that we were seeing in the media. Meanwhile, Mihir is uh, kind of doing the same sort of thing on his own. Um, At that time, um, I had shifted into immigration law only because it allowed me to work from home and we had just started a family. So it was purely practical. uh, Right. You know, although... Now, in hindsight, it's actually helped us with our foundation because I have familiarity with immigration. But um, right about that time, we got a call. Aseem got a call from me here saying, hey, listen, I'm trying to pull together like-minded people because there's, I feel, a void that needs to be met. And that is having an organization that ultimately will be built into an institution that serves the needs of not only Hindus here at home, and not just in India, but globally. Yeah. And and so and he said, but the thing that I'm interested in doing is I've been having a lot of conversations with Muslim groups, with uh, Jewish groups, and mm-hmm. Christian groups. And the key to their success has been professionalizing, so having a professionalized model. And so we we took the bait. Um, you know, see, C- I mean, he here probably got a two for one deal, or maybe a three for one deal with us because he. Initially called a seam, I said I want in, and then yeah. Nick Hill Joshi yeah. as well, and there were a <laughs> couple of others, yeah. and and so we just kind of started really very idealistic. Why yeah. I would say now in hindsight, like what are we thinking? Um, but uh, you know, it took took a handful of donors who we used to give this. I think back, and it's kind of funny. We had almost like a forty five slide deck. <laughs> <laughs> explaining what the Hindu American Foundation, what we envisioned it to be, and what right. we were to do, right. having done nothing. But I think that there were a few, you know, angel donors in the community who said, "Here is this next generation wanting to fill a space that we haven't yet." They right. saw the value, and, and 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 they trusted us, and and from there, you know, within two or three years, we were able to hire our first staff member.
0: So our work
1: got to a point basically where I could no longer do my day job and also help with, with HAF and everyone else had their day jobs as well. But, um, in some sense, the degrees that I pursued really, um, had I not known HAF, I would have applied to HAF anyways. I have a, (laughs) right. I have a bachelor's degree in religion. I have a law degree. Uh, and so um, it worked out perfectly, um, and and I haven't looked back. I just celebrated 11 years on staff, though I'm a co-founder, wow. so HAF right. is 16 years old, but I didn't join uh, staff formally. I was actually the third or fourth staff member to join.
0: So what was the first issue you guys took up when you guys started?
1: So um, do I do remember. Yeah, I do remember. So there were two issues um, that – Um, we took on and and they were kind of, I don't want, they may not have been back to back, but Mm -hmm. first was the Paul Court, issue
2: Uh,
1: If you remember the Ganesha book
2: Yeah.
1: and, um, I'm trying to remember whether we even had a website or not. We may not have had a website back then. This was 2003. Well, 2003, we incorporated maybe 2004, 2005 where, um, we started writing letters, and and that was probably the first kind of public um, uh, presence of HAF. And, yeah. and and we're talking about a very even um, infant web presence for anyone,
0: right? Right, right, right. <laughs> I, mean, so I just got I, out of law school at that point, so I, 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 I this was
1: dial-up internet. I mean, that, yeah. that's what we're talking about. Everyone might have gotten the AOL disk. Well, I,
0: 2005 people. were a little above that because i had just got on got out of law school i think they had like very slow internet at that time but it was still like it wasn't the dial-up though
1: well so it, it would depend on you know we were we were still in residency so we still had dial-up because oh, yeah. was a little bit more expensive i think but uh but this is this was that kind of time the second thing um, that brought us, I think, uh, into maybe the um, view of the larger Indian American community was filing a, a, a brief, an amicus brief to the U.S. Supreme Court. So it was kind of like go big or go go home kind of thing.
0: And right? who filed it? Did you file it or or did yeah. you draft it? Are you drafted?
1: Well, so I was working very closely with, so this is, it, it's kind of a funny story. It was just happenstance that I happened to be in the car when an NPR story came on, talking about Van Orden versus Perry. And they yeah. were interviewing Professor Irwin Shemerinsky, who's a um, expert in the field on religion, separation of church and state. So um heard the story and I thought, wow, this would be kind of cool. You know, a, an American issue in which there's a Hindu voice called up Professor Shemerinsky and said, I'm from the Hindu American Foundation. I don't even know if I'd ever actually even articulated it <laughs> that way. And he said, well, tell you what, there's a national calling call, conference call that the Americans United for Separation of Church and State and the ACLU and a number of uh, Anti-Defamation League and a number of other advocacy groups are joining in on. So day later, I'm on this call and I said, well, I'm here from HAF and we'd love to File a brief, but I don't know the first thing about it. I mean, I had written a brief for moot court. That's (laughs)
2: right, we all did.
1: did (laughs) Counts, uh, or is the requisite amount of experience to know? (laughs) So I think it was um, Americans United for Separation of Church and State who started putting out feelers for a um, for a firm that would help us pro bono. Meanwhile, I end up talking to my brother-in-law, who was a patent attorney. Goodwin Proctor, and he said, "Hey, we have folks who might be interested." So they took it up, and so we had a pro bono firm, and I worked very closely with developing the arguments. And and then before you know it, you know, I went from writing a moot court amicus brief (laughs) to straight to the Supreme Court, which is pretty cool. For for that's pretty
0: (laughs) awesome. Did you ever get the opportunity to appear?
1: No, I mean, I attended the oral argument. Yeah, yeah. And um, so that was actually my first time in the Supreme Court, which was- I have not been yet. Yeah, you should. And visit our offices in Washington DC as well. <laughs> uh, but after filing that brief, it was really interesting to see what the community reaction was. Yeah, and there yeah. we, I think, identified another opportunity um, for HAF and, and what our mandate should include. And that is educating our own community about our rights And so one of the letters to the editor was, you know, America is a Christian country. Why are we rocking the boat? We've been welcomed here. So, you know, I think that also maybe reflects a generational difference um, for those of us born and raised here. We don't feel like guests in this country. We are American. Right. Right. And so, you know, uh, filing an amicus brief or, you know, I don't know filing litigation or, or participating in a public process is very much a part of being an American. So, um, so that was a nice uh, wake up call in in the sense of oh okay you know we did this but right. the community might be somewhere else
0: on it. So um, that kind of I guess sparked your your drive to do education. And so what have you done? in terms of, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot, but yeah. what are your major like uh, programs or, I guess, a process, or not process, but programs that you've done since then to really do education? And, and, and can, can you give us kind of a scope on that?
1: Sure, so I think we look at education in very broad terms. It, okay. it is trying to both shape and change the understanding of both Hinduism and Hindus. Okay. So that's a very, very lofty goal. Yeah. Um, and even the uh, platform or, or the the spaces in which we see educational opportunity is a wide spectrum. It starts mm-hmm. from probably the earliest introduction of Hinduism to the average American, which is any time between K through 12. Mm-hmm. Then it is in college once again, where you might be introduced um, to... Uh, to Hinduism or to issues related to Hindus
2: right. and
1: then of course the most prolific which is the media, uh, right. newspapers, blogs and um, even even entertainment. So that's kind of the um, landscape I guess with right. within yeah. which we work. Uh, I'll just focus maybe primarily on, on K through 12 education. Our approach in K through 12 education um, first of all it was a priority that I think we identified from the get-go only because all of us or or the majority of the co-founders were born and raised in the United States and went through school the schools here and each one of us had faced the stereotypes um, that emanated from either our social studies textbooks or from entertainment right so whether it was Temple of Doom Um, or, or it was the way in which, um, Hinduism was taught in ninth grade or sixth grade. All those things lent to our understanding or recognizing the need to do something about the way Hinduism was understood and how it was being taught. So, uh. Our, our education work, I would say, is both responsive as well mm-hmm. as proactive. The responsive part of it is participating in in school pro- uh, or state board processes. So states like California, Texas, Virginia have what's called a public process in which they, um, they you know, the school board decides, here are the topics we're going to teach. Um, right. In social studies. And this is how we're going to teach it. So for Hinduism. You have to hit these five points. Uh, and so. The problem for Hinduism. Is that those five points are flawed. Yes. When you get to those. If, if the foundation. Is flawed. Then everything coming from it is going to be flawed.
2: Right. Uh,
1: so in California. You know one of the first one is. Study the caste system. It just starts right. off right there. It doesn't even talk about. Uh, oh, and then uh, study the um, Aryan invasion, and yep. then, then, you know I study the role of women. That's a little bit more benign, but then when you see how it ends up, you know, in the frameworks or in the content, it's not so great. And maybe maybe they might have something about karma or the basic beliefs, but they don't outline those. So it leaves right. a lot of room for, um, first of all, just getting things inaccurately. Second, getting things superficially, if they get it even right. And third, conflating a lot of social practices or sociological and um, anthropological um, topics or themes that then get conflated with what should really just be like philosophy and theology. Right. Uh, Now, if, if the approach... For that because the academic study of religion does do that it is interdisciplinary in that it brings sometimes history anthropology psychology right number of you know full slew of different topics if all the other traditions were approached in that same way uh so that christianity judaism islam buddhism sikhism were all taught through that same approach but not. and that would not be a problem but they're not so yeah. so the responsive at part of our work is that so the state board says okay here are what we're going to require textbook publishers to write about these topics the public has an opportunity to submit comments that okay this is accurate this you know is inaccurate this is how you could present it better or here are the topics you're missing so we participate in that public process and um there have been times where we sued the state because they weren't following their own public process um, there are times where they're following their public process but the problem is that you're still at um, you're beholden to you know whatever it is 15 state board members yeah. or whatever the case may be uh, so that you don't have a hundred percent control over what the end product is going to be so it has its limitations but it's still important that you be there um, the the more proactive aspect of our work is creating content and then right. distributing that content to educators. Because what we have found in our day-to-day conversations with teachers or school administrators is that they want to get things right. They right. see that their role in society as a whole is preparing the next generation. And especially right. now, it's preparing the next generation for a globalized world. Uh, they are going to be working with you know, their, their uh, cohorts in Bangalore, or Good. in somewhere in China. So there needs to be understanding for companies to be able to function, for countries to get along, for people and neighbors, especially in America, where we're a diverse, pluralistic, and multi-ethnic, multinational country, you right. need to be able to understand your neighbors. So in our content creation, we have our Hinduism 101 program that's available on our website. Mm-hmm. And it's that's www.hfsite.org for anyone who's interested. But there we provide content on a variety of topics and they take a deep dive. They're probably written for you know, a ninth grade and up level and we have future plans of kind of creating more um, you know, age appropriate materials for say a sixth grade class. Sure. Um, and then also creating lesson plans so that a teacher can, first of all, get the background information from the primer and get their own understanding of a topic And then be able to teach it. We've trained teachers directly at the district, at a school, at a classroom level, Mm -hmm. at a school level, at a district level, and at the state level. So we participate in social studies conferences where we will go and present and give a a basic training to 30 teachers at a time. And so over the past couple of years, we've been able to train about 4,000 teachers. And um, so they... Um, a relationship is built then, where they get initial training. Some some of the comments that we've gotten at these trainings are that, wow, I had no idea I was teaching Hinduism incorrectly for all these years. The cumulative effect of going directly to even just one teacher. One teacher has maybe 20 to 30 students in their class, and then they might teach, if it's a social studies teacher, they might be teaching two or three additional classes, right? so that's 90 students per one teacher then right. apply that cumulatively over that teacher's career because it's not like you get a training and you apply it that year and right. then you forget everything you learned so we really felt that this was an investment that was necessary and um, we were looking to scale it because right. it's so important because there's a demand for good information and there's a concern for getting it right um, so then it's just that and, and we have good content that we've actually worked with academic scholars, we've had um, lay practitioners Mm -hmm. from different sampradas looking at it. So even our materials, I would say, are constantly evolving because it's it's a huge onerous task and responsibility to to try to encapsulate the breadth and depth of our tradition and communicate it away to a non-Hindu audience so that they can actually make some Sense, sense of
0: it yeah.
1: sense of it exactly
0: no and, and so i have a comment and then i have a couple questions for you yes. um so I, I think you're right and one of the things i think it's so difficult is that we're and this i, I take from Balagangadhar's position um that that our tradition isn't a religion it's not like right. in a way that they talk about religion it's difficult to talk about anything connected to what is called hinduism because we don't have the same central tenants and central ideas and this and that it, it all depends on which school you're looking at right so it's so difficult for for anybody and and the task that you're taking is monumental but it's very laudable that you're trying to present something i guess what the mainstream of many what hindus would believe in believe in in the sense of how what they buy into um But it's so difficult, right? Like, what are you going to teach? Are you going to teach Samkhya, which, or Mimamsa, or any of these things that may not have anything in common, but they have a certain ethos that that we talked about earlier that kind of connects them, right? And that's difficult to kind of put that into, like, five points. Um, So, yeah, go ahead.
1: So I was just going to say that, Mm -hmm. well, one, just on classifying us as a religion, I think it's important to do so, only because a lot of the legal frameworks um, I, I that that. built right so whether it's human rights or civil rights or discrimination right. um or all those things so yeah. i i think if if we could it would just be a religion plus right <laughs> in terms of, and, I, and i think many other faith communities would say the same thing for instance you know if you talk to muslims they're going to say yes it's a way of life for them because it, it you know the tradition or or their their teachings inform how they might eat how they might pray how their day is structured. Now, we don't necessarily have all that. For some Hindus, it is. Yeah. Uh, but what we have learned, though... So one is just the embracing of both, not just the word religion, but also the word Hindu, because we get a lot of pushback on that. Yeah. Why do the Sanatan Dharma American yeah. Well, one, because the average American may not hear Sanatan, and they might hear Satan, or they might hear something else that's going yeah, be- yeah. to shut them off. Um, yeah. But second... Look, it's a word that's used to describe us, but we've never if we don't own it and then we relinquish the right and the responsibility to define it.
0: Right? So I, so- I, think, I think you're totally right. Like we have to accept the term. And I had a, a dialogue with even Sean where I have issues with the term, but I accept it, right? Like right. I, I, I it, and I agree with you from a perspective at a at a legal level that we have to define ourselves in a religion just because the framework of most legal systems in the world is built on the uh, in some sense jedo christian later anglican and, and then the system that requires that we have that distinction right. but from a conceptual level i i tend to be we we're not a religion we are opposite of what these religions are because the term religion has have to have a set a set of beliefs a founder a book a this and that none of those things we have so we're we are kind of the anti-religion, religion, if you want to call it.
1: Sure, but there is, there are, uh, there are shared concepts. I would say, in and and when I say shared concepts, and I had, I had a conversation with Hushal about this in terms yeah. of, like, say, if you included it, you know, he has a definition, and I said, even if you include the Vedas in there, yeah, uh, the traditions you're talking about. Are, are, the Vedas are there and it's either accepting them or rejecting them but there's still certain concepts that come from there like so Dharma yeah right karma now how you interpret that is is different so now I don't know that you can say that the, I don't like to use the word beliefs for those things right, right. They're still there their concepts their philosophies. so I do think that there are there is that thread that that we could possibly find some semblance uh, look how many couching words i'm using some semblance yeah. of, of consensus there and uh, because otherwise otherwise there is something that pulls us all together you well, are right so there is something and well that I, exactly is maybe that's that's what hinduism I, I,
0: and this is uh, what i call it's like this what i consider is this stream of consciousness that's so it's varied, but it's like the stream. Where there's there's outlets. Like for example, like even the term astika nastika is not about belief in the Vedas. It's actually the term itself is about the acceptance of the divinity of the Vedas. So even Buddhists yeah. will, right. will accept, for example, the Vedas as long as it agrees with their their uh, uh, their, their thought process. But they don't expect they don't accept the apolitische nature of the Vedas, right? Sure, so which sure. is so and that's the same like,
1: of, or whatever the word you want to use, right?
0: Uh, so is- it's not an issue of of oh th- th- we reject this book. No, it's just right. we don't accept it in this context. We so, accept. Yeah. Right.
1: So there's non exclusivism. Right. right. There's there's something that's there. There's there's pluralism. Right. Um, which you know both of those are maybe two sides of the same coin. And then there's there's a quest for truth. Right. Um, uh, uh, there's uh, there's freedom. I mean, there's a lot of things now, and maybe all those are what makeup dharma i don't know that's a, that's a whole intellectual conversation you can go down that road but but maybe maybe we save that for another conversation but um i i do think what we have learned over the years to get the depth and breadth is learn couching terms right and maybe that's where a legal thing comes where some hindus believe this Others believe this, or some Hindus practice it this way. Others reject this. So ensuring, and, and we've had a lot of people call out, interestingly enough, um, I think that a lot of the understanding of Hinduism, largely, has a Advaita bias.
0: Yes, 100%. Right? So, yeah.
1: so the people we hear from most are Dvaitas. Hey, yeah. why did you write it this way, right? And we're, we're like, you're right. Let's fix it. So that's what I mean when I say that our 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 content is ever evolving. Recently, with my conversations with Kushal on on I, atheism, I, he's opened my eyes to something that we probably need to incorporate and and study more so that people understand.
0: I mean, it, it's it's and, and this is what I'm saying is it's like the work you're doing is so laudable in this sense because what you're trying to do is take something that's so complex and so diverse and plural and and try to put it into kind of a packaging that where you can explain some stuff but kind of leave it open-ended at the backside, where you're conveying some truth that allows your teacher or or your the person that's not acquainted with the tradition or traditions to be like oh wow this is something i never thought about and that's it's a way for me to think about it but also to give them that sense is but this is only a kernel right so it's like yeah, having yeah, a little face, right and, and that's tough to do yeah. especially okay. when you don't have the time for for like hours to sit around to to talk about this stuff
1: completely agreed and so you know these teacher trainings um have been a good opportunity for that where we after we build a relationship there might be that preliminary it's like the thirty thousand foot view yeah. of hinduism but there are a lot of teachers who come back and say well what next What more do you have? Right. So we have had a good partnership with um, like the Sri Shiva Vishnu temple um, in the D.C. metro area where we will host like an intensive for a weekend and teachers are coming in. So in it. So that's where we take a deeper dive into where maybe they had a Hinduism basics training, now we're going to go a little bit deeper into what Dharma might possibly mean or what right. karma samsar moksha means, and guess what, we're in a temple, so now let's go see what worship looks like. Right. Let's have lunch to see what does a vegetarian meal look like, and right. so there are ways in which you can kind of connect the abstract with the day-to-day to give people that understanding or let them know that hey there's a you know there's a garba celebration or there's a diwali program and encouraging families to take their tradition into the school that's where our toolkits have been really valuable we have a diwali toolkit Um, we released a um, holy toolkit this year in which um, either a teacher can take it and run with it or parents can take it into their classrooms and run with it and um, we're really um, fortunate, our director of education, um, she's the second one who's fulfilled this post, uh, her expertise is in curriculum development. So right. we've been really fortunate to have brought in that kind of talent. And that's a, that's another, I think, um, it's a, it's another milestone for HAF in that thanks to community support, we've been able to actually... Uh, make good on our promise to have a professionalized model. Right. But, you know, first it was a lot of folks who were, we were kind of either co-founders, we started as volunteers and became staff, but now we're in a position where we are hiring and, and people are coming to us wanting to work for HAF. They don't right. see it like this big risky factor. There's an opportunity to have a career in which you can serve the community, educate the public, and, and really... Enjoy what you
0: do on a right, daily basis. Right. No, which is awesome. Um, I think mean, that's fantastic. Um, I am going to take it a little bit negative direction. Sure. Not negative, but it's a it's a negative thing for what Hindus had to deal with. So in your initial part, you talked about your your first your like you had your proactive, and then you had your your first section, which is your your on your education side, kind of dealing with what the textbooks and so on, right? So. This goes back to, like, 2005 when you first started the, the textbook uh, issue with California, I think. Uh, you guys were kind of spearheading that, right?
1: So there were a lot of groups on the ground. Uh, okay. and And honestly, we got involved once the process started going south. Okay. So, you know, there was, um, I believe, Hindu Education Foundation. and And... Okay. Um, Vedic Education Foundation. I think they're associated with Bursana Dham. Oh, I think their name has changed now, but from Austin, Texas, right? So those okay. are kind of the two um, primary groups who are submitting comments um, and edits and suggestions. So,
0: so, so before we get into, can you kind of explain, start with that issue? Because I right. want to I want to. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. So um, what the state board does um, mm-hmm. or the curriculum Frameworks committee. I won't get in too much into the weeds on that. Yeah, what they do is they put out for public display uh, Drafts Mm -hmm. it can either be drafts of frameworks, which are basically very skeletal outlines of what will be covered Right, or it can be textbook content And and that is a little bit more detailed on this is how we're going to teach the things that are on our frameworks or the outline um, even more skeletal than frameworks are content standards. The okay. content standards in California were actually ad- adopted by the state legislature. And it would take an act, another act of the state legislature to change the content standards. Wow. So remember when I went back to saying that when you have flawed
0: premises, yeah,
1: five, those are the content standards everything else flowing from it is always going to be a little bit rotten and that's the problem in california
0: so how did they pick the five and how was that passed into law i mean who makes that decision
1: we're talking about content standards for hinduism that were adopted i want to say either late 80s or early 90s so they were you know maybe they brought together a panel of experts but we know the state of the academic study of hinduism yeah or many of your listeners may, uh, so you can only imagine, only today are we starting to see these emerging voices of of uh, scholars um, who are committed to reflecting the tradition with without the lens of, you know, indol- like traditional Indology or Marxism, right? So, yeah. um, you know, those things probably largely... Or,
0: or from, Freudian thought, which comes I can, from... Oh, of
1: course, how can I forget my favorite? <laughs> Um, so, um, so that that cannot be changed without a bill or, or yeah. some legislation to change that. We actually, in terms of, and this kind of maybe goes a little bit into our policy work, mm-hmm. but we actually successfully worked with a coalition, secular, uh, faith-based, a very diverse coalition, to um, advocate. For a bill that would that called for the revision of the content standards and for whatever political maneuverings or whatever the the governor vetoed it that was a couple of years ago the information is on our our website right. so there have been efforts to change the content standards but it's it's a, a little bit more of a steep climb because it gets you know politics and, right. advocacy and all that sort of stuff involved uh, so so that's how the, the school textbook stuff happens, right? That these content sta- or sorry, these frameworks or the textbook uh, content is put out for the public to make comments on. In 2005, these uh, community groups had successfully gotten a number of edits and corrections accepted. Uh, to take it just one step back, in terms of what's the overall problem with the way in mm-hmm. which India and Hinduism are covered. Um, One is um, just the inaccuracies, just basic inaccuracies, whether it's in captions or or in the way that things have been defined. Second is uh, the way in which images are selected. So there are a lot of images that I think uh, validate certain stereotypes. So when you're in the India or Hinduism section, you'll see a lot of you know, pictures of poverty. Yeah. And, or you know, there there's a classic picture of a woman who's collecting garbage, or a cow eating from a pile of you know garbage. So contrast that with, say, the the chapters on Judaism where they show like a family sitting together for seder dinner, um, or there's like beautiful Renaissance painting. Yeah. Moses. Uh, you know, so. Uh, you see a real dichotomy just in the visuals and pictures say a thousand words. Like if you're a kid, you're and if you're not yeah. really you're just looking at pictures, right? So that's that's just kind of a general problem with the way in which Hinduism is presented. Then I would say the number one issue is the conflation of caste-based discrimination and Hinduism. Yeah. Uh, this this particular topic takes up sometimes half of a unit on on hinduism which maybe you're lucky if it's six to ten pages right so there's a disproportionate focus on social practice now this is not to whitewash history or deny the fact that caste-based discrimination is a reality in south asia Uh, but where where we have sought to bring nuance and context to this particular topic is to first of all make a distinction between Varna and Jati. Sure. Uh, Varna being a philosophical concept and, and actually being the underlying uh, conceptual framework to personality types, which is the heart of a lot of psychology today. Sure. Uh, so that's one thing. And then Jati, which were the uh, the social units that, that evolved in Indian society. So that's one thing making that distinction. The second is to turn to basic Hindu teachings about the divinity of of all creation and all people. Um, and so that being kind of an underlying, you know, understanding or, you know, each person having an atma that yeah. is either a reflection of the divine or the divine itself, depending on what school of thought you're coming from. Um, so that's a second fa- uh, point. The third is the evolution of the system. That sure. You cannot uh, describe it as this rigid system when history tells us that it evolved. It, you know that um, that you you saw different jati groups changing um, their professions and then thereby changing their overall association because there was at some point some sort of not conflation but association that occurred between the jatis and the four major varnas because you have thousands of jatis
0: and yeah.
1: only varna. So trying to bring that sort of level of detail in in there but but even then you should be talking about caste if you want in a larger chapter on india perhaps but not necessarily when you're just covering hinduism right right In the same way that you're going to cover slavery or conquests um uh, in a historical context but you're not going to teach those things as fundamental integral christian teachings or or jewish teachings or muslim sure. teachings. so that's another challenge in the way hinduism is taught uh, the third would be the role of women mm-hmm. in in some books it, there were just blanket statements of in hinduism women are inferior to men <laughs> okay uh let's talk about navratri let's talk about shakti oh. let I mean, Let's even, talk about the pillar of many households. Let's talk about matriarchal societies in Kerala. Like, come on, like
0: seriously. I, I mean, it's 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 crazy to me because like one of the first things I learned was Satyam Mata dadmam Prata. Right. The first thing that's the the truth is mother. Right. This is like, and then second to truth is knowledge, which is father. And and it's, it's, its idea is, and, and this is a crazy. The women are foundational. Like even in our tradition, like a man is not considered complete until he's married and that when he is married he can't do any of his rights without his wife it's 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 it's, it's literally requires them to be together like men and women have to be together
1: right so the, when you when you simplify that now contrast that to yeah. the the description of women in Islam for instance yeah that Islam conferred onto women more rights than the pre-Islamic society. I mean, you know, there's. It's almost somersaulting to say, well, here are the positive things that yeah. women receive from the tradition, while you have one simple statement without even acknowledging. Out of all the major religions that are taught, yeah, in 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 middle school,
0: we're the only ones that worship we're the women.
1: The only one that acknowledges the feminine divine. Yeah and you have no mention of that so right. that's that's another area that's deeply deeply problematic and then going back to kind of the inaccuracies sometimes a chapter on hinduism may not even like they'll have dharma but dharma is somehow defined as only caste duty and nothing else you know so you don't hear about concepts of like ahimsa ahimsa might come up actually in the chapter on buddhism yeah so then you have a then that last kind of theme in which uh, inaccuracy or or un- lack of parity yeah. is that Buddhism is somehow it's taught as being an improvement. Oh see Hinduism with all these problems with their women and their caste problem and all that. Well now Buddhism came around and yeah. it sought to improve all the bad stuff. Right. Um and so it was like you know a reform movement or what was it? Possibly. No, no well, it wasn't you know what I mean? The point is that you could make that argument but a lot of things can you imagine a school textbook that said here's judaism but they had all this stuff wrong with it so that's why christianity came about but then christianity also had all this stuff wrong about it and that's where islam came in like you would never see that sort of presentation you wouldn't say and i mean you can't also sorry sikhism is also oftentimes presented that way
0: you know, I, but this is the problem is again i mean when you go back to the the actual sources and 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 even the 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 hit, the, the works from that time period, it's never a sense of Buddhism wasn't a reform. It was another monastic path. You know I mean, sure. like most Buddhists, and, and this any scholar of Buddhists will tell you, would be every day at home practicing Vedic world. They would do yajnas, they kept their caste or jati or varna, they kept it. They didn't discard it. That's what they They would just follow that when it became to the most monastic path. because. Buddhism is a monastic path, just yes, like Jainism is. It's a, it, I mean, and, and this is what the textbook should. I mean, there should say a lot of things. But there's there is Shamana path, which is different from the Brahmana path, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the path with most people should follow, and the shamana paths, which Jainism, Buddhism were were basically meant to be monastic paths. It wasn't reform. It was a way to deal with the world by discarding the world.
1: But this goes back to colonial era narratives. Right. Right, and and so um, those colonial era narratives still largely inform the textbooks because they still 100%. largely inform the academic study of religion. What we're, started, what we're starting to right is is also those Marxist narratives, right? Yeah. Like when it comes to caste, it's almost a mishmash. Uh, I haven't seen Freudian, I guess, because for K through twelve, they have to keep it, you know, G. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> <laughs> but I have not, I, I, I'm definitely seeing, um, you know, more of those Marxist narratives. Yeah. Start, that's also largely because of activist academics, um, South Asian activists um, slash academics who, so in California, that's what happened, right? You had community members who had, were beginning to see some success. At the 11th hour, uh-huh. academics wrote a letter um and i believe michael Witzel from harvard was the yeah, lead man. so of course he uh, abused harvard letterhead i don't know if you know that was allowed or not but you know that's an entirely different story but had co-signatories of kind of the i like to refer to them as the usual suspects you're going to see all these signatures oh, alexander um, right yeah. you're going to see the signatures come up um when it, you're dealing with political issues in India, you're actually going to see a lot of these signatures when they're trying to uh, join the um, BDS, the boycott, Di- divest, sanction uh, movement against Israel. Uh, yeah. So there's there's a definitive political ideology that drives um, these coalitions of academics. So that 11th hour letter comes in and all of a sudden the state board of course intimidated by harvard letterhead and a bunch of professors who say they are experts in the field slam on the brakes and start having these closed door meetings the difference with these closed door meetings was that while there was not necessarily a hindu representative um, they were allowing other faith communities to be at the table Um, really Yes. So during the deliberations on Hinduism, they had uh, Professor uh, Witzel and debating him or I mean, it's horrible that this sort of stuff was being debated, per se. And Michael That's Witzel doesn't that. even have expertise in history or in Hinduism, maybe Sanskrit so-called expertise. But um, and
2: a guy.
1: yeah, and and um, Professor Shiva Bajpai, who has since passed away. Um, so, you know, it was kind of a, a, a dual duel. <laughs> I don't know what you want to call it, like. Uh, but Professor Bajpai, um, you know, who's a remark was a remarkable scholar, um, was able to ensure that many of the edits remained unchallenged because right. the way in which Michael Witzel was opposing them was on a political basis. Or, oh yeah, yeah. You know, and and you can find some of the. I believe some of those transcripts are are available online, uh, but. That's when we stepped in, when the right. process started getting unfair. And then we also submitted our own comments. Uh, but um, but that, I think that lawsuit, you know, while people may debate whether it was, I wouldn't say it was 100% victory. Because yeah. even though the court ruled that the process was flawed mm-hmm. um, and the state board um, did well, they didn't rule that either. They said the process was flawed and that the state board did not uh, follow its own process. They did not require that the textbooks be republished and that the whole process be opened again. We're, just from a practical standpoint, Think yeah. again, you're talking about millions of dollars that now the state yes. is going to have to pay again because you're going to have to rewrite textbooks. So what that lawsuit succeeded in was that it forced the state board to adopt. There was actually a long-standing court case from a couple of years prior in which there was a standing order that the State Board of Education had to clean up its process. Because I think there was a pattern of this, of uh, working behind closed doors and things like that. And so what our lawsuit did was finally made sure that the state board followed even their processes previous or your order and they created a more transparent process Uh, it was also symbolic that look we are not a community that's going to take things laying down right Uh, and so that's where I think um, litigation is a powerful tool you may not get a hundred percent of what you want right uh, but um, it's an incremental strategy uh, and you have to be in it for the long game in order to utilize it
0: so let me ask you then um, this is just in California have the other states like Texas and you said Virginia, I think Florida, right? Mm-hmm. Um, did they have uh, similar processes and, or was it much easier for you to uh, engage with them?
1: Um, so, uh, you know, we work with coalitions um, across, across the country. Um, yeah, yeah. Other states have not been as contentious as California. California yeah, yeah. has also been um, kind of uh, Ground zero for this South Asianist activism. Also, okay. Right. So um, you have like Friends of South Asia and some of these other, I don't even know if they're, they were at least a, a loose group. They're not necessarily a registered organization, sure. I don't believe, but but this network of, um, of organizations. And oftentimes what this network basically is, is it's like the same five or six activist professors who create new acronyms. They're very good at creating acronyms um, yeah. and create these Organizations so that when there's a sign-on letter, it looks like there's you know 40
2: Yeah,
1: but 35 of them can be traced back to the same five activist professors So um, I think that probably exaggerated it um, in terms of of how contentious this uh, mm-hmm. became now Um, the challenge is a little bit different, um, in that um, these professors have also partnered with um, Ambedkarite Dalit activists, as well as Sikh activists and Muslim activists. So Mm -hmm. they create a coalition. Um, But many of these professors have Hindu names. So they technically uh, can state that, oh, we're also um, here um, as Hindus. But if you look at most of their writings, they're they're not necessarily representing the interests of Hindus. In fact, um, during this last round of of adoptions, one of their allies testified um, in in front of the state board and on the public record that um, Hinduism is a. It wasn't until he came to America, and I'm paraphrasing, that he realized what a evil social construct Hinduism is. So this is the sort of attitude. They, they firmly believe that, um, you know, for some of the social grievances that, that legitimately exist, that for those social grievances to be addressed, Hinduism has to be
0: um, annihilated. Are these guys scholars of religion or are these scholars of like Sanskrit or? Uh, uh,
1: usually, so this is where like, um, it's like intersectionality hell. Uh, <laughs> <So> <laughs> you have, um, you know, and, and not to say that there's not legitimate work. in sure. These spheres, but yeah. we know that there's activist elements, um, w- which uh, are not just within the Hindu and South Asian um, sphere, but in the larger uh, sphere, uh, behind kind of the stifling of free exchange of ideas and speech yeah. college campuses. So you have gender studies, you might have South Asian studies. You had a lot of scholars of Islam weighing in on Hindu edits, but yeah. they were silent on edits for Islam. Right. What's right. your motivation there? You have to look back and ask. Uh, so, um, uh, and then there were even, um, professors who had nothing to do with any of these humanities um or liberal arts there were science professors and things like that so clearly they're coming from a political ideology because they have sure. nothing to do with um with what we're doing what we have been able to do though is that we understand the optics of you know when when a state board which is made of like administrators and volunteers yeah. uh, and yeah. sometimes K through 12 educators educators when they come across like a, a letter that's written by, you know, on Harvard letterhead, no less, and with all these professor names, with these PhDs, um, that there's a weight that comes with it. Well, we have been able to build relationships with a number of scholars, and I think you've probably talked to many of them, yeah, uh, you right. know, <laughs> Professor Jeffrey Long, um, Professor Ramdas Lamb, Lam, and um, uh, Professor Anand Rambachan and a number of others who are yeah. really respected in the field, Um, Professor uh, Barbara McGraw who teaches interfaith and and a number of other things that they understand the challenges and they are committed to teaching um, or not teaching but at least incorporating more emic understandings um, Mm -hmm. or lived under, you know, understandings of the tradition as a lived tradition. Um, And so we've been able to build relationships with them and they have come out to support you know accuracy and balance in the way hinduism is taught
0: right and, and that's 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 awesome that you're you're building this uh team of people that uh, scholars that have not only are are objective and and come from diverse backgrounds but have have either a lived experience or a deep knowledge of the history of the texts and and the people uh that are, that are involved right so I, I think it's uh like you know to have that is um nothing sh- Short of necessary, especially going forward, right? And and, and this is probably something that you couldn't have been done like twenty years ago um, right. with people will having the courage to step out and talk about it and 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 connect to a Hindu organization, to be right.
1: honest. Right, and, and that's that's the thing that um, well, one I you know, oftentimes people will mistake mistakenly assume that i think mistakenly assumed that you have to be hindu to be able to teach hinduism accuracy and i don't think that's that's right i think that if scholarship um remains um guided by intellectual curiosity and intellectual honesty and integrity you can study any topic um so so that i just want to put that out there the second thing is that what we have found um, in our relationships with and conversations with a variety of academics is that there, uh, to use the words of the intersectionality <laughs> movement in some sense, there's not a safe space for teaching Hinduism um, in a respectful manner sometimes. There's not a safe space for publishing papers that reflect emic understandings of the tradition, so that, you know, the major journals, where and and you know I know Raji Mohotra wrote about this long ago um, about like the cartel that you're not going to get invited to the uh, conferences yeah. crowd panels or you know unless you toe to a particular narrative right. yeah. um and and so it, it it's a it's a complex issue that needs to be addressed I think the the easiest and most important way is for more um, Hindus to certainly pursue the academic study of religion or or humanities or whatever, um, but also more students take those classes and take professors to task um, when you know, because you might have a professor who has a Hindu name, but they're going to be teaching the tradition from a completely Marxist lens. right. and And, I, and the problem is, though, that many of our own community children, don't know all of that and so all of a sudden there's there's a a asymmetry of power and your professor who's cool you know has a big bindi and coal-rimmed eyes and a big scarf because that's the leftist costume um you know she's giving a lecture and um your grade depends on learning or you're enamored because this professor is super cool and um and so we have to i think prepare our children at high school to know how to recognize the different biases. And there's still something to maybe learn from a Marxist sure. interpretation of religion or a Freudian, well, it's a so much, but it's a- layer, right. It's yeah. one way of understanding a, a phenomenon, a global phenomenon. Sure. But it's not sure. the only way. And I think that it's a professor's responsibility to say, listen, I view history through a Marxist lens. Put it right. out there. That's a yeah. honesty. And then that way, at least a student would understand, or uh, you know, lay out there all the different ways in which you can see religion, so that right. a student can better recognize.
0: Um, no, I, I that think that's I think that's totally right, and and I think th- there's a point you made, which sometimes is is frustrating to me, and and I think it's it's people of our our generation and and probably younger generation that have. Growing up in this country and um are hindu or whatever and but they tend not to be i mean i'm a liberal guy like my my politics is very liberal and and i I tend to align that way but what i'm starting to find is people don't have the the knowledge of, of the hindu traditions religion whatever so anything that is said by anybody about hinduism is automatically like supported right like even this like one, one of my biggest difficulties is this um and i'm not a hindu fan, so i'm not someone that follows Hindutva and whatever there's a recent article that came out by some guy on the caravan which is a terrible article but um but the idea of hindu Actors, nat- by
1: the way he's not a analyst or a oh, by
0: any yeah, I, I think he's not anybody in terms of like any knowledge or skill set that connected um but my my point is like to even terms like hindu nationalism It's such a weird concept to me because what you're trying to do is give this equivalence between white nationalism or European nationalism to something that Hindu, which doesn't have any of those tendencies historically, like we don't have a sense of a nation of Hindu nation, like, like this is only for Hindus. We we know that. But to have that conversation, it becomes like, oh, you're Hinduto a follower. No, Hindutva to me it just has its own issues, right? It's it, I think it's a very Abra- Abra- Abrahamized version of Hinduism. In some sense, it's very reactionary. People are taking up these concepts in a similar way that, that happens in Judeo Christian Islamic framework of how to view this has to be the path, the way, the truth, whatever. But I think. We're not even allowed to have a conversation about it without being labeled a bigot or this or that.
1: I, I agree, and, and well, first of all, I th- I think that we need to problematize the word. Yeah, that's what academics do. But but in the academic sphere, there's only one understanding of Hindutva. There's not a definition of it, but it's a pejorative, and it's used to discredit scholars. It's used to discredit uh, critique, legitimate critique of yep. academics, and it's used to discredit advocacy organizations and Hindus. Yeah. so it's a meaningless term in some sense or it's a very meaningful term meaning when what i mean by that it is has many meanings yes, right yeah, yeah. Different people you ask different people what it means and different people will say different things the supreme court of india has said one thing um, you know the uh, Sarvarka has said something else
2: yeah.
1: someone else well, you ask an average hindu what they think it is on the street in india they might say something else you say you ask someone on twitter who maybe identifies as a whatever, they might have a different definition. So there's that. But so there's a diversity there. But where there's not a diversity is in the impact and the harm from that particular term. You see um, that that caravan article does that. I mean, to suggest, um, I don't even want to mention the name of the article because I don't think it should have any more traffic. Right,
2: right. right. I agree.
1: (laughs) But... This 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 notion that Hindu Americans who are politically engaged, oh, they are Hindutva. Hindutva is a bad word, so be you know, beware. And Hindutva, yeah. if it's a bad word, then it probably needs to be equated with supremacy, misogyny, racism, you name it. All exactly. the things that we don't think are are good for society, for inner people relations, or whatever the case may be, that's what it is. It is, and that's how it's used. It's weaponized. I actually just wrote, well, so I posted, rather. Um, I presented at the American Academy of Religions. There were a number of people who, Asha Shipman, who's a chaplain um, up in Bo- at Yale, um, she suggested this topic. She said, you know, many Hindus are afraid to come out and, and speak up about certain things or be proud of their identity because they're afraid of the label. Hindutva, because as soon yeah. as she do come out um, assertively, it could be right around the corner, right? So she proposed this uh, panel and um, initially had a hard time getting, getting it accepted to, by the yeah. American Academy of Religion. So we talk back about that cartel. Ultimately... Um, You know there there are smaller sections that have been started at the american academy of religions um and even side meetings um where we found a space for it we had a very robust conversation so i presented a paper uh, called the weaponization of hindutva and i just recently posted it on um, the hindu american foundation blog um and had to split it in two parts because it's long but (laughs) Talk about not just problematizing, and I don't go too deeply into all the multiple meanings of Hindutva. Sure. I probably should um, at some point. But talk about how it's been used to discredit, discredit legitimate concerns uh-huh. um, of, of our community. And how even words like left and right are so sloppily used. You, you said Especially you're a liberal, Right? You said you're a liberal. I would agree that I am a liberal as yeah. well. Um, at one point, I used the word that I used to self-describe as a progressive, but I don't anymore because yeah. it's taken on some weird you know,
2: anti-everyone
1: yeah. else kind of uh, or anti-majority uh, meeting and not looking at the humanity of every individual. Right. So even left and right, I problematize those terms Um largely in a political sense but you know to say that someone is right-wing or left-wing it's really just looking at it through an american lens which is largely framed by judeo-christian pr- principles right. then it's gonna look different in different places so i talk about that in that um in that two-part
0: piece as well absolutely i mean and that's right right like and, and i think kushal brings this up pretty often too which is to call uh, the bjp or Hindu the whatever right wing it it doesn't make sense because it it sits on the left of spectrum when it it comes to everything about economics and all this other stuff it's very much like a socialist kind of ideology and and i don't want to get into indian politics and that's like a whole other uh, basket of of nonsense um but i mean
1: my area of expertise anyway
0: yeah but to me i guess the bigger point is what i'm saying is even to express your hindu-ness or your positions on Hinduism, it and, and vis-a-vis any other religion, you're instantly—if it doesn't comport with what the majority right now thinks how you want to speak or uh, have the opinion that you should have—you're automatically, like you said, labeled hindutva, right? Like if, if you think that they're to have an indigenous perspective upon academic academic like work, you're hindutva. Like for example, recently, like the work that Vishwa and uh, Joydeep yes. did, which I thought was, right. was fantastic work, right? I've read it, I've read, yes. and I've read so much of these old Indology guys, too. And, and you, you, you can clearly see the threads that Vishwa and earlier are saying. It's very much based on this uh, 18th century, 19th century uh, German Indology, right? And and But people instantly, like most Indologists call them Hindutas. The, and, yeah, and if you
1: know Vishwa... No.
0: Yeah, i mean, think it's, it's ludicrous <laughs> it's not at all. uh but additional, the flip side is non non-indology people actually tend to write pleasingly and uh and kind of very uh laudatory about the the text indology or and in people in that, in that that sphere tend to be very reactive and i think that's the problem is we have a world that's i mean the way we think about hinduism is through a lens created by Indology, maintained by Indology, and even the way Americans think about it is based on these guys. Um, and and so when we cross lines, we talk about, for example, like even if we were to talk about things of transgendered or whatever, that that Hinduism on the whole has been much more open right. and liberal about these concepts. But at the same time, the moment you say that, oh, you're just kind of revisionizing his history, I'm, I'm like. No, it's a problem. Is you have this vision of what you think Hinduism is that is built upon some some of these premises that are totally flawed.
1: Right, and you know, look, there's there's not necessarily. I I don't think we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater in terms of where there's ways in which to look at a tradition with a particular framework or structure that yeah. might um, reveal interesting things, but when, when you insist that that can be the only framework through which you see it, and then you know, indigenous frameworks might get squashed or not respected or not given the same level playing field, that's when it becomes a problem, right? Like, so, and, and this goes across the board. I mean, and in some ways, it, it would be asking for a Hindu ethos in the study of religion, right? Because we have Darshna, you are looking at things in different ways and we're okay with disagreeing and we're okay with, uh, you know, contradictions. Um, We need a little bit more um, Hindu attitude, I think, in the academic (laughs) study of religion.
0: My only point to that was not that that they don't have validity in certain points. Mm -hmm. It's it's that when those views get so entrenched that you're not willing to even consider that, okay, there's a variant look at something. Let's even have a discussion about it. But instead of having a discussion, you just instantly label someone this. It's the same way when someone says, you know, like, okay, I understand that maybe uh, we don't need to throw white privilege in everyone's face. No, you're a racist. If you don't allow, no, let's talk about stuff. It's okay to have a conversation. Let's be respectful. Talk about it. We can be critical of each other's views, nuanced, but we don't, what we don't need to do is call name calling. Are, Are we like on the playground when we're two years old? You know, I this, no, this no, feels-
1: completely agree, completely agree, and look, we also have to, you know, there's this, there's this seep of like groupism, right, where we're unwilling to see individual pain and individual suffering, the, yeah. and that's, that's to me, some of the problems in progressive circles, right, like, well, if you're this, 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 then you're out because you have this many layers of privilege, so shut the hell up and sit down. That's not a constructive way for um, sure. us to address the challenges of of institutionalized racism or bigotry or poverty and all of these issues that uh, the environment, all these things that we care about, that's not going to help.
0: Right. Because it's not group versus group. It's really about people. Yeah. And if you, and if you don't get to the, the brass tacks of people, then you're not going to be able to solve a problem or, or make or make anyone feel accepted you can't groups are entities that exist in concept and concepts they they're not legitimate you, you can't interact with the group you can't right. only interact with people <laughs> right and when you interact with people is when you solve these problems so i mean i think you're 100 percent right here we have to address it that way so let me ask you a few closing questions i have taken yeah. so much time no,
1: no,
0: no. Uh, this has been great oh it's been fantastic um so recently have you and and the other members of hf been dealing with more uh pressure bigotry um and kind of response especially in I, because obviously anything connected to india is obviously connected to hinduism in, in the way that people view it, right like but even when we write about kashmir in some sense uh i'm sure there's been some sort of response from the the larger community, especially, you guys have spent so much time building coalitions with different religious groups and different organizations. Have you seen that at any point come under attack recently due to to what's happened in India?
1: Absolutely, I mean, Kashmir is a perfect example. It's, um, you know, the issue of Kashmiri Pandits is one that we've highlighted,
2: I mean, from
1: our inception. And um, to see, like, the complete erasure of what happened to this indigenous community, and and especially from progressive circles, is right. mind boggling. You know, on the one hand, you want to stand for the rights of indigenous people. Here, you have the cleansing of three hundred and fifty yeah. thousand, and massacres of thousands, and and rapes and destruction, and to not look. I mean, setting all politics aside. Um, whether you, you know, whether you feel this was, it could have been done better, um, you know, there, there needs to be a, a lifting of communications uh, blocks and all that stuff. I, I can't disagree with you, but to selectively um, highlight the suffering of some groups and not others um, or some individuals and not others has been um, eye opening. I just have a really hard time understanding how that can be justified sure. uh, and this is as a as a you know like uh, where haf is nonpartisan but as a lifelong personally as a lifelong democrat yeah. I'm disillusioned by my party and the response that oh yeah from some ends of the party that have been coming out and yeah. um you know we're not we're not the party of the people anymore if it's going to be selective in this way
0: well, and I agree with you, because, I mean, the one thing that you never see highlighted, and, and I'll, I will give you this. Ber, uh, Barca Dutt recently wrote a piece in Washington Post so I think it was very balanced and a I, solid piece. Um, we've
1: and done it, an analysis. It's it's on our blog. Yeah. I think there were 17 or 18 articles with Barca being the last one. I believe the vast majority, none mentioned Christian abundance.
0: Oh, they did not mention Kashiri pundits. They don't mention the Valmiki community. They they don't, don't,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, they don't. They don't mention, mention
0: the women that, of that.
1: that, that would I this mean, would this are part of the the region.
0: I mean, but, but, <laughs> the, the bigger part to me that's kind of insane is you. We it, it, especially when we talk about uh, like progressives or liberals or Democrats and feminists, right? We should be. I mean, feminists should be up in arms by the fact that men in Kashmir can marry anyone they want and even outside of Kashmir and have property rights for their children, but a woman marries a non-Kashmiri man out of the state, no rights. I mean, are you, to blow your mind as a feminist, be like, how is this even okay? And it's not okay in India, right? It's okay in Kashmir because the constitution of India doesn't apply.
2: Right. I I know. <laughs>
0: But what I'm saying is, I mean, my point is it's been made into a, a an issue that's a mono issue versus the fact that there are so many different things to talk about, the complexity of the issue that the West should and people in the Democratic Party should be even stopping by and saying, look, maybe this way they did it was wrong. But let's talk about what's going on and not just say, oh, the entire state is incorrect here. Right.
1: It's just it's it's selective. Look, OK, we can't um, deny the uh, the, the lobbying efforts of, of Pakistan government and, um, and the rallying around this issue that globally many Muslim organizations have put their weight behind it. So in some sense, even if it's not a Hindu Muslim issue, it's being forced as one. And there's definitely elements of that. I mean, the insurgency and the cleansings that have occurred in the Valley are, are, Religiously based, um, but uh, there's there's constitutional safeguards that were being denied from these people. I mean, you know, we've been we've been on the Hill, going up and down offices. We had a briefing um, for the Senate staff yesterday That's on true. this very issue. I had conversations yesterday where people with a straight face asked me, "Well, what about you know concerns about demographic shifts?" And I said, "As an American." How can you ask that question? Are are we going to begin having that conversation for our country to say, yeah. well, we don't want too many people of this color. If if, if we have that conversation, yeah. what's that person going to be labeled? What about the demographic shifts? Like, should we have too many people of this race or religion move into this country? And maybe we should legislate so that doesn't happen. Hello, this is what the civil rights movement was about to uh, right. get rid of that. Is it? It has it become a reality where you know those types of considerations are not part of um, you know keeping some people out and keeping some people in no but that there's at least an ideal that we have agreed upon that you know we're all equal and as people as members and citizens of a country we have the free right to movement within our own country right so when but that has helped to have the conversation in that way. To, all of a sudden, they're like, oh, wait a minute. Now I see what I'm saying. Yeah,
0: because it, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know. and, and, but this is the importance of, like, the work you guys are doing is it's understanding something from a different perspective, right? Like, you look at something like Kashmir, you're like, oh, my God. But the moment you phrase it as free movement of people within your own country, that, and then you think in America, you're like, oh, what if suddenly they decided that half the country you can't let Latinos into because it'll change demographics. Would anyone in this country be okay? No. Right.
1: Exactly. No. And not only that, but, I, I mean, then, okay, if you're concerned about demographic shifts, then let's acknowledge what's happened over the past 70 years and the demographic shifts that did occur as a result of a proxy war in which Pakistan right. has partnered with terrorist outfits.
2: Right.
1: But that's not part of the conversation well maybe it's the conversation in some circles um, in Washington DC right. because there are people who know this issue inside and out and there are others who maybe don't know it as long as they express some curiosity and are open to learning great that's why we're here but what what the media is doing is completely ir- irresponsible right. irresponsible it's a campaign of disinformation and so, I, you know it's inexcusable quite frankly
0: so let me ask you another question this might be a little more icky so if you don't feel like answering that's fine <laughs> is it difficult um to separate out uh when you're talking about hindu versus india
1: yes and no um yes and no the way that we approach these issues look we have been critical of the government of india and we have supported certain policies um, yeah. For the government of India, so we're not here to represent the government of India. We're here to represent the well-being of Hindus. We we also believe that if if policies um, allow for the well-being of Hindus, then all people, it's going to ensure the well-being of all people, right? Right. So, um, we have members who are Hindus of non-Indian descent. Sure advocate for Hindus who are Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Malaysian, mm-hmm. uh, Trinidadi, um, now many of them are of are ultimately of Indian descent, um, but they're not Indian anymore, right? They're Fijian or Sri Lankan or whatever the case may be. So um, is there overlap between Indian culture and Hinduism? Absolutely. Sometimes it's right. really hard to separate the two, uh, but... We do see a distinction. Um, but we also see India as a sacred homeland. Uh because right. as you mentioned earlier in terms of the temples and why certain temples exist where they do, there's a there there's a sacred history, or as Diana Eck has said it, there's a sacred geography.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: So um in that sense, uh it's hard to pull away from from India. Um and and I mentioned like that sense of belonging. But yeah. the, the last thing is that oftentimes what happens on the ground in India reflects on us as Hindus here. Sure. And therein lies the challenge where we may not speak out on every single issue uh-huh. um, it, uh, that occurs in India, but there are times when we will because you know maybe our American neighbors or colleagues are asking about it. And so sure. there's a need to um, clarify because oftentimes What happens in the media, and this is across the board in its coverage of religion, either the role of religion in a particular phenomenon is ignored or it's overstated. It's really hard to find when the balance is just right. So, you know, suppose there's some incident of communal violence in India. While there might be two different religious communities, it might have been over a border dispute or a property clash or you know, some other sort of social issue that was underlying it, but it gets framed as Hindu Muslim, right? right. So um, so those are the places where we sometimes get pulled in um, to situations. But right. for Kashmir, um, our, our intent and our motivation was that here is a, a, a group of Hindus that have been persecuted, and they're no different than Hindus in Bangladesh or in Malaysia. They just happen to be, you know... Uh, what's it called? That they, they just happen to have been persecuted within their own nation. right.
0: right. So. I, I mean, just to comment on customer. Then two questions, and we'll close out. Um, so, on the Kashmir situation, I think from a Hindu perspective, it mm-hmm. is part of Devabumi, right? For us, it is it's, it's part of the sacred geography of of what's it's a civilizational hub of part of India. I mean, not India of a Hindu ethos, right? So much of our history and oh. and our connection is to the kashmir region um I mean, so it,
1: it, Shavism, it, yeah I mean, it used to be a center for buddhist and hindu learning right yeah. so, um and and even Sh- adi shankaracharya when he right. talks about where he saw kind of you know where he traveled yeah
0: so i mean like in some sense a, a part of kashmir is very similar to what Mus- uh, mecca medina would be for uh for for muslims or Uh, You know, Israel, the Vatican might be for Christians and Jews. It's it is a a central part of 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 Hinduism, right? There are there are so many uh, yatra's there to go to and visit. But I mean, I'm just saying, and, and from that perspective, it is important for. Hindus, too, that reach it. From
1: that perspective, even Pakistan has.
0: Yeah, so but like, yeah. <laughs> but what I was just saying, it's, it's it, but, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, there's no way for us to go to Pakistan, right? But yeah, we should be able to, if it's part of India, to still okay. go to, and see and, India with that.
1: Exactly. And, yeah. you know, so with Amarnath, for instance, that there have been, there have been phases in which... Yeah tourism increased but yeah. many times when tourists, Hindu tourists and you know I'm not even tourists I want to say pilgrims, yeah. were at, Uh yeah. So it was not safe for Hindus to go to their sacred sites to worship.
0: Right, so now the question. Um, uh, there's two questions. The first one is this is the first, I think, large election cycle in the US in which we have a candidate who is out and out of Hindu who has who has been wearing it on her on her sleeve but has also come with some amazing credentials right she served in the military you know was a a senator or representative in hawaii and then now is a congresswoman it's her entire life has been like very hindu and then service oriented and very american so it's like this point of somewhat pride and she's not indian which is even some ways cooler because it it shows the the panness of of the, uh, the Hindu ideas. Um, how do you think that has impacted the community on a whole, and has there been any negative reactions to it? Uh,
1: so, on you know, as far as the impact on the community, I think it's been a very positive one. Yeah. Uh, I think that um, many Hindus from India are very self-conscious sometimes of their religious identity for, you, you know, I don't know what, a variety of reasons. Um, colonialism might still be playing a, a role in that. Uh, but generally I think we're, you know, not necessarily, we don't have to talk about it maybe. And so it's not yeah. part of our culture to, you know.
0: Um, well, we're also the other. whereas others you can get. so right.
1: right. <laughs> so, um, so I think that um, to see someone who's, like not self-conscious about it, I think is liberating. And and I know from my conversations with a lot of young people and even for myself, just seeing that this is powerful, this is, you know, it's just downright awesome to see like a congresswoman who's at a rally and, and it happens to be Jan so she's like, you know what? I'm going to lead you all in Kirtan. Like that's yeah. pretty phenomenal. I think that in some ways, um, like the the, the Trinidadi diaspora also has that similar um resource of people who can inspire uh i believe when the first prime minister i don't know if you was really the first but when um she was or he was elected i'm getting my i'm forgetting but you know the whole group she led the whole like group of people that had gathered i'm talking thousands in hundreds. Yeah. like when you have something like that it makes it okay to be hindu and right. to be not just to be okay to be hindu but to be proud of our right. tradition, and I think the other thing that she um, is so um, good at and about is articulating um, the inspiration that she draws from Hinduism into basically what's been a life of service. Right. And and I think that it's. Um, for me at least, hard not to see how um, it's this tradition that also kind of um, inspires her approach. She's very measured. She's very thoughtful. Um, This is all in my personal capacity that I'm sharing this because HF is nonpartisan, but, you know, that... um, that thoughtfulness, I think you see it in, in other legislators too, who are grounded in the tradition. Raja Krishnamurti is another one mm-hmm. um, who I, I deeply admire and respect. Uh, that you know they they, they don't scream. Uh, so there's there's just um a, a groundedness about them that I think um, at least for me I see it as being rooted in, in our teachings. Um in terms of Negative things that have come across. Absolutely, we and we talked about it a little bit earlier. Yeah. That this um, you know bogeyman of of uh, of Hindutva um, so often has has been brought up to not only try to discredit uh, Tulsi, not only to try to discredit or attack Raja, but also those Hindu Americans who are slowly starting to find their political voice and maybe start making political contributions or run yeah. political office, um, this term is, uh, thrown at them to discredit and um, you know, whether it's been successful or not, I don't know but, um, you know, if we don't do enough to educate people about right. what it is to be Hindu, um, they may very easily and mistakenly conflate the two and right. um, that's where our work comes in um, not just for those of us at the hindu american foundation but all of us as hindus to you know be more open about having conversations about what we believe and what inspires us and how we lead our lives and how we contribute to our communities inspired by this tradition
0: sure uh last question and then i'll let you go uh so what uh it's kind of a two-part what's in the future for you like, is there anything that you're pursuing on your own that you want to like, kind of throw our light towards? And what's in the future, kind of that you're planning with uh, HAF at this point?
1: Um, so, wow, I haven't even thought about uh, what I would do. Um, I mean, I find I, a book
0: or anything like I, that, or anything. So, well,
1: I, I've had a lot of people asking me to write a book. I wouldn't even know where to start. But, but maybe there's a book in the future. Um, Now that I've said it, now I might have to hold myself to it. Um, But um, I see myself, you know, I've been doing advocacy for many years. And one of the things that I'm really focusing for HAF is kind of institution building and succession planning that I want. You know, as a co-founder, I've obviously been here from day one, but I want HAF to be around for future generations. So um, building the infrastructure that will then host the next ED, the ED after that, yeah. so that HAF is around for you know my great grandchildren ultimately. So um, that's kind of a long term vision uh, for HAF. Um, in the short term, we are hiring <laughs> for a uh, director of uh, community programs and and probably soon a director of public policy to meet kind of our immediate needs. Um, and so uh, scaling our work. Increasing our membership because an institution is only as strong as the support yeah. that we have from the community So we need to improve our brand recognition as well and make Hindu American Foundation a household name um, And then once all that's established and maybe you know, so Shrukla is no longer the ED uh, I'd like to kind of go back to grassroots um, Seva whether that's in India or or here in my local neighborhood and working with Um, underprivileged communities or or kids or something, I I think I'll still be um, pursuing service. Um, I just don't know how.
0: Excellent. On that note, how can people volunteer or assist HAF? And if there is, um, what kind of things can they do to assist HAF? And if they can, how do they contact you guys?
1: So um, you can come to our website, www.hafsite.org. Obviously, you can support us with a uh, contribution. We're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we're nonpartisan, so all all contributions are tax deductible. Um, we, if you join our mailing list, we oftentimes have action alerts. We're an advocacy organization, so we don't always have like hands-on volunteering opportunities, mm-hmm. but. Um, We do have chapters in a variety of regions in the San Francisco Bay Area, in the Tampa area in Florida, South Florida, um, Dallas, Texas, Houston, Texas, and a couple of other emerging chapters. Uh, So you can be on the lookout to see if there's a chapter in your neck of the woods. Um, But otherwise, if you join our mailing list, we very often have action alerts. so that you could maybe make a call to Congress, um, or to your local congressman, or write a letter to the editor. Um, we also often have webinars where you can get certain types of training, so whether it's mm-hmm. Temple Safety and Security, or Know Your Rights, um, or a Dharma Ambassadors Program, in which we are um, teaching our own community members on how to teach about Hinduism to non-Hindu audiences, so that they can get involved in interfaith, or at the school level, or or whatever. So there's a variety of ways that um, people can can kind of join the cause.
2: Awesome. Thank you.
1: So-